0: Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from 360 Learning, and each episode, I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm speaking with Matthew Gearson about his time as a pilot instructor in the US Air Force and managing training at SpaceX. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us. And thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. Matt, welcome to the Learning and Development podcast. No, oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, firstly, I've never met anybody uh, in our profession who's had such a unique career trajectory. Uh, perhaps you could start off by sharing your journey in L&D with us, please.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, my journey started in the U.S. Air Force. I was an instructor pilot for about uh, about nine years. Um, had a lot of fun there. Got got the opportunity to fly to instruct in, in a couple different planes. I actually had the unique opportunity where um, in immediately after completing pilot training that they, they, they kept me back and I became an instructor right away. Um, they call it a, a FAPE, a first assignment instructor pilot, which is, um, kind of a, a unique thing in the, in the air force. Um, there's a, there's just a, we, we have kind of a, a fun group of us that, that, uh, call ourselves FAPEs. Um, so started off there and then, um. While I was doing that, I also spent a little bit of time instructing people in fitness. I got really into triathlon and and marathon running, and so I did some training for folks to complete their first half marathon. Uh, After spending nine years in in the Air Force, uh, I I, I got into the Air Force because I wanted to go into space, and so I was getting more and more interested in SpaceX and following them very closely, really wanted to work for them. So when the opportunity uh, popped up for me to leave active duty, I did. To try to make my way over to SpaceX, wasn't sure how I was going to do it. Never in a million years thought my time training people how to fly would have anything to do with what I would with what I was going to do for the rest of my career. I didn't even know L and D existed. Um, And then through a bunch of networking on LinkedIn, managed to connect with somebody who uh, ran the launch site at uh, at Vandenberg in in in, uh, Central California for SpaceX and started talking to him. He was like, well, you know, I I need, I really need help with training. Can you you do that? And I was like, well, sure, I guess. I mean, that's, you know, I guess I've been doing that for the last couple of years. Uh, and then I kind of just fell down the rabbit hole a year later. I found myself, um, uh, moving to LA to take over the learning development team for, for all of SpaceX, um, which was a ton of fun. And then the whole learning development world just kind of opened up uh, in all its wonder (laughs) and I've just uh, loved it ever since I I was at SpaceX for for a little over four years then went to another startup for a couple years and then just recently relatively recently went on my own and now run uh, my own consultancy called Better Everyday Studios uh, where we we work with companies to we we say we help companies build learning solutions that produce business results Uh, so that's that's kind of our, our main
0: focus. Wonderful, and there's so much that I want to dive into there, uh, and, uh, and and pull apart from uh, from your experience in uh, uh, in both of those uh, in all of those areas. But uh, but you know, most people, uh, myself included, it sounds like you too uh, fall into learning and development. I wonder whether you ever got the feedback. What is it that you exhibited as a pilot student that had you be picked up as a uh, as an instructor so, instructor so quickly?
1: So it's interesting. I actually, I like to say, um, I didn't fall into it. I failed into it in some ways, cause there's this thing in, uh, in pilot training where by rule, the, uh, first ranked person in a class has to get their first, their first choice of assignment. Um, and I, there was a particular test that I failed. Um, so I wound up being second in my class and, uh, fate, though, long-term, it turned out to be like amazingly fun. And it is, was an amazing job. It's in a small town in a rural place, which when you're, you know, mid twenties, um, isn't necessarily what everybody wants to, wants to do. Um, so that, that, so there was a, that was one reason why, why I got selected to stay behind. But I think in general, um, you know, even very early on the thing that I noticed about uh, about myself is um you know even when i when i failed it was i was able to clearly figure out why i failed like i could pinpoint the moment where there was a lack of understanding i could find the gaps in my understanding and find the gaps in others understandings and i think that's one of the key things too good trainers too good instructors too good learning and development professionals you know, we talk a lot about helping to achieve business outcomes, not wanting to become order takers. And often we wind up being order takers because we're not good at finding the gap, you know, and making sure it's a gap that learning and development can, can help. Um, and so I think that that's one of the things that um, I seem to be pretty good at early on. Um, and it's and to, to to this day, it's one of the things that I most enjoy. It is is really doing that analysis of what where is the breakdown? Is it is it a knowledge gap? Is it a motivation gap? Is it a skill gap? And uh, well, the listener we, wouldn't let cool me
0: uh, wouldn't forgive me if I didn't explore that with you uh, a little bit more. So so how do you do that? And the reason I ask is you know I've had Guy Wallace on here, Bob Mosier, uh, some of the, uh, the the most prominent figures in in our field who believe that analysis is the key. To successful learning and development, in the absence of enough analysis, and we're not talking a learning needs analysis in which we uh, we look to to fill our schedule, curricula, and our platforms full of content. But in the analysis that actually I recognise is that gap between uh, incomplete or ineffective or inefficient performance and competent performance. How do you go about that? Uh, and what what were the what were the early uh, um, stages in your career where you felt that you that you recognised that?
1: Yeah, to me, uh, it really all comes down to behavior and identifying a behavior. You know, we talk a lot about um, identifying the business outcome, the the ROI. What's the thing that you're trying to change? And that's really important. You need to talk to the business, be out in the business, figuring out what are the what are the outcomes they want to achieve. But if if you're going to be effective, it's it's identifying. Okay, what's the behavior that we're trying to change? You know, if somebody, um, you know, doesn't feel like they're paid enough money. Uh, then L and D is not gonna not gonna help. You know, if somebody isn't getting the right tools, L and is not gonna help. If somebody isn't getting feedback, then L and D isn't gonna help. Um, but if identifying. And so that, that's why I always, the simple question that I always love to ask when I sit down with a subject matter expert, I did this all the time when I was at, um, when I was at SpaceX sitting down with like a health and safety professional, this is always the best where they'd talk about, Hey, here's this thing that we're trying to do. This regulation says we're going to do this. There's all this information and you, you let them talk for a while. And then you just say, okay, looking at all this big picture, I'm just gonna ask you one question. What's the behavior you're trying to change? Right? And then everything else flows from that because that behavior is then going to dictate, you know, wh- where the behavior is, is going to dictate the modality with which you try to try to get them. What the behavior is, is going to dictate whether or not e-learning is effective at all, or if it needs to be some kind of practical training, um, how much, how, how complicated that training needs to be. Um, so I think for me, it all comes down to the behavior. And, and I, st- the reason I focused so much on this is because really, really, when I moved to SpaceX, um, it was just like the ultimate imposter syndrome, right? I mean, I was surrounded by just all these brilliant people in a company doing amazing things. Um, I was brand new to, in my mind, you know, I was brand new to corporate l which made, made me feel you know, really brand new to the profession. And so I dove deep into personal development. Um, you know, kind of the Tim Ferriss's and the Tony Robbins's and, and that kind of stuff. And then that led me into, you know, so, so they're all about motivation and change in behavior. And then that led me to asking the question, okay, so what is behavior? And so that led me to learning a lot about the brain and how the brain works. And really, you know, I think we understand behavior a lot. Um, you know, I think we, we use terms like muscle memory a lot when referring to sports and, you know, physical movements, but muscle memory really is neural memory. Right, that's what it is because it's the neurons that are firing. Muscle memory is referring to the myelination and strong and, and you know building connections between certain neural pathways in your body, which means you know thoughts have the same process. You know, it's laying down um, those pathways in your brain to trigger certain habits and behaviors, um, and so that's really where it all comes down to.
0: Uh, so Matt, we, we've I think we've touched already with uh, with the uh, with your um focus on behavior and the gap analysis but i wonder in in what other ways do you think that being a pilot instructor has shaped your perspective and practice of lnd
1: yeah I, I think the other big thing that it really did and both i think from a flying perspective and a fitness perspective it really widened my eyes in terms of kind of how creative you can be about practicing and how isolated you can be about practicing certain certain things i think you know uh Fitness is a great example of there's all kinds of drills that people will do, you know, whether it's running and you're doing high knees or, or something, or I was a big swimmer. And I remember all through high school doing these weird drills where you're like, you know, like running your hand along the side and you're, you're like swimming, like trying to treat your elbow. Like it's a fin sticking out of a lot, like a shark fin. And just all this weird stuff and none of that was because you would ever swim that way but it was trying to practice a particular attribute and strengthen a particular attribute and so i think um, you know taking into corporate learning what that can mean is it it really highlights how we can isolate isolate particular parts of a behavior that we want somebody to exhibit you know things that often feel really awkward. You know, when we're teaching people how to be active listeners, we'll, you know, encourage them in a classroom setting to say things like, so what I hear you saying is, um, and we, you know, use these very like rote terms that can feel really awkward and out of place in just like everyday conversation. And I think, you know, from the fitness and flying world, what I've learned is like, that's, that's okay. That's the point. You know, that awkwardness is kind of the point. It's not that you're going to forever be using that phrase and trying to artificially inject it into your conversations but it's to just make it more likely that you're going to say something like that or really make sure you're paying attention to what the other person is is saying and go that extra step Um, so i think when you look at the areas of the world where we've really spent money and resources figuring out how to train this stuff namely the military namely fitness um, that's what they do. They they get really creative about like, okay, this isn't. We don't need to do the whole thing. We can just tr- practice this one thing. Practice this one aspect of behavior um, in order to kind of move the ball forward.
0: Okay, so it's a, here's a big question for you, Matt. Um, uh, that that I'm sure is going to uh, uh, pick many's interest. How do you train uh, a pilot? I mean, I'm sure I'm sure it's, uh, it's it's you know it's going to be pretty exhaustive. Uh, but I wonder if you could give us uh, like a, um, a broad view of, uh, of how you go about training pilots.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, it's, it's certainly a pretty long process. I mean, so for, you know, for most people, you know, uh, people in the Air Force in particular, they, you start with uh, uh, taking getting almost a private pilot's license. You fly for about 25 hours, you do some ground school. So you've already flown a little bit before you even enter pilot training. Pilot training is a year long you learn to fly two different planes during pilot training. Um, but I mean, I actually, I, I did a post on it just just the other day on, on LinkedIn where that really highlighted that how much you, you have to stack learning methods to really get the, the outcome that you want, where it starts with just information dump, right? Where you get literally this like giant stack of books. It was, I think it was like three feet high. It was a giant stack of documentation. And you're just kind of told to read it. Now, not you're not just told to read it and and set free to read three, three feet of books, you know, a meter's worth of books. You're 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 given a specific pathway through it. And it's not even book one, two, three, four. It's book one, chapter one, book three, chapter seven, book eight, chapter two, because those three chapters all like intersect together, right? So there's a very clear through line, um, very purposefully designed pathway. Um, And then you reinforce that knowledge several times where first you read it, then you do some online learning, then you do some classroom learning to really engage with it. Um, Then after you've intaken the knowledge, you make it practical where you go into a couple different, uh, simulators where some are really low fidelity, where they're just like buttons without even a screen. Um, in fact, that's one of, one of the things you get when you start pallet training is this big poster that you can put on your wall. That's just like a layout of the cockpit. So as you're reading, you can like visualize where, um, where buttons are. Um, and then, uh, only, and then, you know, it's, it's can be, it's two or three months of ground school potentially before you even get in the plane. Um, and then you get in the plane and it's very much, uh, it's very much kind of like on the job training. It's either the pilot, the, the instructor does something, uh, with you kind of like shadowing their movements, then you do it with them shadowing their movements and you just keep this repetition again and again, giving feedback every time, um, until they feel like you can do it on your own, and then eventually they they send you off to to do it on your own. Um, the the nice thing about flying that can be different than a lot of things is is just how immediate the feedback is. You know, it's very it's very fast. You know, if you're if you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing.
0: Um, so that's certainly a benefit that you have. Wonderful. Um, uh, and and Matt, I, I can imagine that there's a great deal of uh, as well as the technology in the plane, uh, uh, plenty of uh, of. of, of, of um, uh, technical learning, like like um, I've seen the simulations, for example. I think we've all um, experienced some kind of uh, a flight simulator in the past, or and seeing perhaps on TV the flight simulators that uh, that, that you'd be using. Uh, and I, I, you know, I look at uh, at flight simulation and and really see the potential of digital to transform learning and development, putting people into a safe safe space you've got the simulation you have the real life practice and the uh, the technology helps to uh to provoke the emotion that you'd gain as well, as well as the uh the um uh, the environmental factors or you know the environmental factors would would affect the emotions uh, and yet I made no secret of the fact on uh, on this podcast uh, that i think that generic content uh, uh, generic suites of 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 Click next e- uh, e-learning is an abomination, uh, and uh, and and the the faster we pass through that, uh, feel the embarrassment and move on, the better. Uh, but I wonder what uh, what you feel, having experienced uh, technology that that truly advances capability. Um, what are we missing in uh, in the rest of L and D that uh, that perhaps we can learn from uh, from from uh, those simulations?
1: I think there's there's a couple of things. One to your point of what the majority of e-learning is, is being okay with just knowledge transfer, right? Like, I think that can be okay as long as you have something else, right? I, I often think of e-learning as a preparation for some other engagement, a preparation for the classroom, a preparation for on-the-job training, a preparation for something. Um, and so I think that's fine. You know, we use that a lot in the in the military, um, just to get that initial foundation laid, so you don't have to spend quite as much time in the classroom doing it. Um, from the simulation perspective, I think you hit on a couple of things. One thing that I think um, is really important to understand is um, really how low fidelity you can be sometimes. if you know if you know what you're trying to do, it doesn't ha- the, the the human brain really likes to fill in the gaps and create patterns, right? That's really what it's designed to do. Um, and so it doesn't have to be, you know, there, there's certain triggers and I'm, I'm no, I'm certainly not an expert in this, but I know there's lots of research around this where there, there are things that matter, um, you know, with Oculus say, um, you know, you hear the, the big breakthrough with Oculus was how closely, the movement of the screen or your vision matches the movement of your head. You know, a breakdown in moving your head and the field of view moving, um, is a big signal to your brain that something's wrong here. And so that has to be spot on. But I think there's a lot of other things that don't have to be spot on. You know, we like interacting with, with cartoon characters. And, you know, it's actually one of the things that we do a lot, um, we do a lot of creating videos in Beyond, uh, which no one would call call realistic in in any way. But we've found that when it comes to like teaching people how to give feedback, it can be better to watch a very obviously cartoon animation than a than a, a video of a person talking because then you know, it's not real. You're not judging their acting capabilities. You're not judging any of that kind of stuff. And so I think learning what can be low fidelity and what needs to be high fidelity is, is, is a big thing. Um, the other important thing that I think you, that you hit on is the emotional aspect of it, of we can, that's something that, the the military does really well. Like we would actually have, um, uh, you know, there's the, whether it's like flight simulators, or even in kind of like our leadership courses, we have these. You know, the, the military has these leadership courses that you would go through, where a part of the leadership course is is going through obstacle courses, and it's and it really is. It's not an electronic simulation, but it is a simulation in that they they assign roles to the people on the team of you're going to be the leader, and you know that kind of stuff. And so you're you're creating a simulated leadership environment, and a big part of that that made that simulated leadership environment successful was the fact that this obstacle course that you were going through was very clearly made in like the 80s it's like a lot of concrete and metal with like scant areas of padding here and there and you're like like there was a very visceral fear that you would feel about it um and that fear is you know emotion is one of the ways that you strengthen pathways in, in the brain, you know, and so using it within simulation, you know, amping up the emotional element of a simulation um I think is is really key to
0: having a view. Wonderful. Um so moving on to the next chapter, uh then Matt, what was L and D like at SpaceX?
1: Uh it, it was it was interesting. I mean SpaceX is an amazing place. SpaceX is, I think, by you know probably one of the most definitionally Folk goal-oriented organizations that there are, right? When I think it's really clear that people need to understand that when, when, uh, Elon and SpaceX in general talk about going to Mars and making humans multiplanetary, like it is real. Like that is what they are trying to do. Uh, and what I believe they are going to do. Um, and so very, very focused, um, Ellen. And, and so for that reason, L and D was very, very practical right? I think a lot of times you want to think, oh, what, you know, what amazing pie in the sky things you were doing. It's like, that, you know, we were doing the things that like people believe would work. And like, we were just focusing on it. It was very, very decentralized. Um, you know, lots of, um, lots of people out in the business, you know, your traditional trainers out in the business. Um, so, you know, from, from my perspective, I learned a lot while I was there about just working in that kind of environment, having just come from the military, which is Very obviously top-down, like the leader says, this is the direction you can go and then you go. Um, lots of time and energy spent on figuring out lines of authority and responsibility. Um, and in, at SpaceX, it was, I think I would have had a shock any, almost anywhere I went outside the military. Um, but SpaceX was very, was very fluid. Um, so it was a lot of working with lots of different stakeholders and and that kind of stuff.
0: Uh, And so what were some of the priorities and, and initiatives you were involved in at SpaceX?
1: uh a lot of the early on stuff that i did was really about uh about streamlining you know i I think a lot of people there have been a lot of people talking about this recently but it's like you know that that standard metric that so much of l and d uses of the time spent learning a lot of our focus was flipping that on its head and how do we limit time spent learning you know especially with things like compliance um it was one of my favorite um things that i got to work on very early on was um, you know, just dramatically reducing the the time commitment of employees in compliance training. It's one of those things because it's a it's not an acute pain. You know, it's a relatively low level pain that's just kind of felt lightly across the entire business. Where once a year you're like, oh, it really? Do I have to do that again? But you add it up. You know, you have a, a company that's five thousand people, ten thousand people. If you can cut 15 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour out of your training, it winds up to be a lot of time. Um, and so that's where really getting focused in again on what behavior are you trying to change? And even if it is just a knowledge transfer course, does that knowledge directly relate to the behavior that you're trying to change? You know, the classic one that I would always see is, um, you know, the see a lot, I remember taking uh, a, a course on, you know, fall hazards, um, you know, in, in like a construction environment. And there was a lot of stuff, because if you go to the OSHA regulations, which is you know, our, our health and safety uh, body in the U.S., Um, you know, there's, there's lots of restrictions around, you know, like if the, if the platform is so many inches above the ground that it needs to have a railing that is this many inches above the platform. And if it's this many inches high, then it needs a mid rail and when it needs a kick plate, like, I, as an employee, am not building this platform. I'm not building railings. I don't need to know any of this stuff. Um, and so finding opportunities to, to get rid of that
0: is, is, is really important. I, it's fascinating how uh, when you are outcome focused in learning and development, you look for the most effective and efficient ways of doing that. First of all, you see whether you can do it. And after that, can you do it more efficiently? But when your input's focused, then you focus on the number of hours you can get for people to learn. One of the, the, the questions that you, used to drive me nuts at Disney on the engagement survey, and we always got a walloping for it, was do you have enough time to train? Uh, and and everyone said no. And you know, you're asking the wrong question because you're you're discussing learning like it's a perk rather than it is something that is essential in order to to upskill and reskill uh, individuals. But what you settle sound like you're talking about here, and it sounds uh, if you're working for an organization that is goal driven, you're focusing on the outcomes and then looking for the most efficient and effective ways in order to do that. And um, and how refreshing that is in a profession that that counts days years and you know hours and you know on, on in training rooms uh or or in lmss because we haven't done the analysis so we don't so we don't understand the impacts that we want and so we land on our desired impact being more time learning which is bananas exactly
1: and i mean i think you know the the perfect quote from elon that has always stuck with me and i'll take i I repurpose it almost everywhere i go is um the best part is no part and like you the the goal is to get the outcome you want like if you can get the outcome you want with doing nothing great right like then do, do that you know but like you're like and i think so often you're you're absolutely right we get into a mode where we're like we're we're um like uh publishing houses or something, you know, where, or, um, you know, I, I think, I think this is true. I say it a lot, I use it a lot with documentation. The best document is no document, right? You, 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 you should always be only, only create something when it must be created. And then even then you should always be trying to get rid of it or streamline it or combine it with something else. I think it's a big thing too, that we need to shift more into a mode of there, there, there's not enough, time spent in l and I, I generally, plenty of companies probably do this well, of thinking more as like program managers, right? Because like everything you create, you're going to have to come back to everything you create, you're going to have to update and edit, or eventually your L&D program is just going to kind of collapse under under its own weight. Um, now, that being said, to your point about uh, thinking of it as a benefit, I think there is a case to be made of L&D can, parts of L&D can be a, be a benefit, you know, and I think that's, that's what you're doing, when you're um, putting, uh, you know, getting a, a LinkedIn Learning or a Coursera or um, subscriptions like that, but we shouldn't confuse that with outcomes-focused L and D. You know, it can be a great thing that you can want to do for your company, but it is almost more in the realm of like a comp and benefits kind of thing than an L and D thing.
0: Yeah, because you know, we we sell when people come to to. Um... Uh, to interviews and when they join our organizations that they wish to grow now too too often and I've seen this that uh that is this that's perceived at the classes that you can attend, but it's bought by the employees themselves as a way to get better and faster at the job and improve their prospects and yet we think the course is good enough and of course it isn't uh, and it never will be uh, and there'll be plenty of people who uh who attend and complete courses who don't get the growth and the progression that they're after because the organization again is an outcome focused it's input focused but going going back to uh, to SpaceX from from your experience there um what have you learned about developing a learning culture in other organizations because it was clear that you that you uh, operated within one at SpaceX
1: yeah i think the one of the big mistakes that i made honestly because you know like i said this was the my first role in the corporate world, Uh, the first time I was in in corporate L&D, made a lot of the classic mistakes of just like, I'm going to, you know, we're going to prove our worth. We're going to go out here. We're going to challenge the world, really do everything. Um, And I really, you know, upon some of the things I learned there and some of the things I've learned upon reflection years after is just how you you can't have, uh, you know, your L&D priorities, your learning culture don't matter if they are separate from the overall organization, right? You know, how do you get people to buy into your LD priorities? You shouldn't have to, because your LD priorities should match the business priorities. You know, how do you develop a, a learning culture? Y- you can't create a separate culture from the company culture. So what are aspects of the company culture that would help learning or promote learning? You know, by all means, like, focus on that. But we shouldn't be, like, thinking of it as a separate thing that we are trying to develop outside of the rest of the organizational culture um, i think that's that's one thing that i learned is just um you know and, and another important thing that i that i learned while i was there that isn't necessarily specifically about LMD or on topic but i think one thing that we and and lots of people on social media especially tend to do is you know we we say there's a right answers and wrong answers so you have to have a learning culture you have to have this kind of culture and the the way i always think about it is um you know you you don't get points for scoring a touchdown if you're playing baseball um, you know you you just there's different games different companies are playing different games and there's different ways to advance and different ways to achieve outcomes and um it's really important to if if you if you are someone who wants a certain kind of who believes in a certain kind of learning culture a certain manifestation of learning culture and you and the company just does it match that the organization doesn't match that? It doesn't mean that either of you are right or wrong. Um, it might just mean that you're you're not in the right. It's not a right match.
0: Now, now, Matt, you and I share a guiding principle about LD that in any given context, it's it's the context itself is essential uh, and an essential component of development itself. So, how does this manifest in your practice?
1: Yeah, I think so. Going back to Kind of when I was uh, talking about behavior um and learning about behavior, I, I actually have a a, have a presentation that I give on behavior on on uh, learning design for behavior change. Um, and I break it down to three key components. Uh, specificity, connection, and context is the last one. So specificity is being very specific of what you're trying to achieve. Uh, connection is how do you build connections within the brain, and then context is is the key thing of we are all designed to remember things in context, right? That's what we do. Um, there's a reason why, you know, you're you're in the kitchen and you you have an idea and you go go over to the living room to write it down and you get to the living room and you and you can't remember it anymore and you go back to the kitchen and you remember it, right? Um, it uh it's it's because that's how our brains are designed because you know, threats are based on the environment that we find ourselves in. And so making all learning contextual is is incredibly important. The more contextual it can be, the better. This is why I think one of the reasons why learning in the flow of work is so important. Um, but so for my practice specifically, um, I think a lot of it means, uh, you know, what we primarily do is help make custom content. I think companies need to invest more in custom content. And the great thing is there's tools out there today that make it easier than ever um this is really another lesson that came from SpaceX we were a very small scrappy team and we made everything ourselves and so we had to you know accept good enough you know i think with content creation it's 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 perfectly suited for 8020 for the 8020 principle where you don't need to shoot every video in 4k <laughs> you know you you can do iphone videos you can do vr and animation you can make things really really quickly use templates to empower your subject matter experts that that kind of stuff um so i think making things contextual is really important um but i think another part of that is not i think something something one thing that can sometimes happen in D because people so often correlate or or, or bridge between like education and learning and development. You know, there's lots of teachers transitioning in. Um, the thing that most commonly comes to people's heads is the, when they think of L and D is the teacher or the trainer, the person who is the subject matter expert imparting that knowledge. And I think what can happen is we try to think of ourselves as subject matter experts who have something to, who have knowledge to impart. And we do, but not about the subjects of the business, right? We're we're subject matter experts in learning. And so a big thing that we can do to make things super contextual, make things super relevant is spend more of our time. How do we empower the subject matter experts of the business? How do we put them into the learning? How do we make them be the experts, hold them up um, rather than trying to take the spotlight
0: ourselves? That's, uh, that's brilliant advice there, Matt. Um... Uh, and and something that that I wholeheartedly um, uh, advocate too. Uh, so so Matt, as we uh, we look to to wrap up, um, if uh, if people want to connect with you, uh, follow your work, how best can they do so?
1: Uh, I'm super active on LinkedIn. That that's the main place. Um... Matthew Jertsen, if you want, you know, I know that's kind of hard to say, but I'm sure you'll link to it. It's a G, if you look up GJ, you'll, you'll get pretty close. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm, I'm really active there. I love engaging in the conversation. Uh, our website, Um, we're we're making a lot of revamps, trying to start put, putting out blog posts and stuff like that there. So those are the main two ways that, that people can, can see what we're doing.
0: Wonderful. And we'll put some uh, links in the show notes. But all that's left for me to say then, Matt, is thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development Podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was a blast. I'm always fascinated by L&D in contexts I'm not familiar with and those where it's perhaps more critical and interventions have to work. Perhaps we live with the insecurity of whether interventions have impact because the stakes are too low. And perhaps we should raise the stakes and challenge ourselves to deliver results and not just programs and content. If this conversation has whet your appetite for good quality L&D chat and you'd like to get involved, you can now join the L&D Collective of which I'm an active member. Join me and hundreds of LD peers via the link to the LD Collective in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at DavidInLearning and connect on LinkedIn, for which you'll find links also in the show notes. Goodbye for now.